0: Good morning, everyone. Let's go and open with a word of prayer. Lord, we just come before you this morning and just rejoice in your goodness, rejoice in your mercy, rejoice that you sent your Son. And Lord, we're so undeserving of this, and yet you, you gave us such a gift, such a gift. And we just, as we lift up your word today, help us to... Um, so help me to, the words coming out of my mouth would not be those of me, but of you of you, and we just uh, we thank you for your, uh, your Spirit. We thank you for the the word that you've given us that is clear, and as sharp as a two-edged sword. And Lord, we just left, we lift up uh, this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. If you could, if you would open your Bibles to uh, Galatians chapter two, verses four to fourteen. as we continue our study this morning of Paul's multi-frontal assault on those who would compromise the purity of the gospel. And so I'm going to pick up um, where I loft, left off that last week with verse 4. And if you could, if you're able, if you could please stand in the honor of the reading of God's holy word. Yet it was a concern because of the false brothers secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy on our freedom, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to enslave us. But we did not yield in subjection to them even for an hour, so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. But from those who were of considerable considerable repute, what they, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no favoritism. Well, those who were of repute contributed nothing to me. But on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, even as Peter had been to the circumcised, for he who was at work for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised was at work for me also to the Gentiles. And recognize the grace that has been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who are are reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was also eager to do. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of some named from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and separate himself, fearing those from the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in, in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, If you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? You may be seated. Last time when we opened Galatians, uh, we looked at, at how Satan operates through the parable of the wheat and the tares. Satan loves to counterfeit. He appears disguised as an angel of light. His ministers are disguised as angels of light. They masquerade within the people of God and among the people of God and in the church. Subtly proclaiming error. The people in Galatia, in the cities of Galatia where the churches had been established, believed the true gospel. But in come false teachers with another gospel, which is no gospel, who would have been accursed by God for preaching a deviant gospel. And they basically said the gospel that Paul preached is not true. Salvation is not by faith alone. You must also follow the traditions, the customs, the ceremonies, and the circumcision of Moses. In verse 5, where we begin this lesson, that statement is the reason that Paul wrote this book. So that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. He was in a battle against those propagating a false gospel. There were Judaizers, Jews from Jerusalem who had come into the region of Galatia in the Gentile world, purposely following Paul into the churches that he established in this region. Now what was happening is what continued to happen really throughout Paul's entire ministry. He would preach the true gospel of grace and faith, and along would come Judaizers and say, No. Gentiles cannot be saved unless they come through Mosaic constraints They wanted to impose those on Gentiles who of course in their own history Were utterly ignorant of Moses and the rest of the Old Testament But for all that we can see As we touched on the last time There is a far greater spiritual war that rages At a more extensive and more formidable and more consequential level than anything you can see or imagine. The war between God and Satan, between God's truth and Satan's lies, this goes on all the time. It is an endless battle. And anyone who comes into the kingdom of God is defined by the New Testament as a soldier. As a fighter, one who is there to defend the gospel, uh, go with me if you would, over to um, Second Timothy 2 verse one. Second Timothy two, verse one. you therefore my son be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust these to faithful people who will be able to teach others also suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus no soldier in active service Entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him. Now, this section is often gone to as a confirmation of multi generational discipleship in the scriptures, and that it is. And yet, it flows into verse 3. As it flows into verse 3, it brings up the necessity of not losing focus on the battle. That is before the soldier. Don't get caught napping at your post or distracted by thoughts of home at your spiritual post. Thoughts of the world caught up in the things of the world. As you fail to realize the enemy creeps up in front of you and he is just beyond the rampart. Or more accurately today, he is already in the trench with you. We know that Judaizers in Galatia were called out to spy on the liberty of Christians so as to take away their freedom. Now one might ask, well, what do you mean by freedom? Well, freedom, uh, freedom, in this case, was visualized as being freedom from the law as the only means of salvation. Freedom from the law, where the law is seen as a damning instrument by which we will be forever punished having violated it freedom from the external ceremonies which the old testament law required freedom from jewish traditions freedom from works as a means of sanctification rather than love the christian is free in christ free from any external ceremonies and rituals in 2 corinthians 3:17 it says now the Lord is is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is what there is freedom. As believers we have the holy spirit residing in us. John 8:36 So if the son sets you free you will be free indeed. So back in chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, Paul said, if anyone preaches another gospel than the gospel that I have preached to you, let him be anathema, cursed, damned. Paul's concern in writing this letter, uh, and we see this in, in chapter 2, verse 5, at the end of the verse, is so that the truth of the gospel will remain with you. He's concerned about the truth of the gospel because the gospel, the good news of salvation, is clearly defined in Scripture as the only way people can escape hell. We have to get the gospel right. And what is the gospel? I want to quote directly from our own church's affirmation and denials on salvation. And if you have not read these, I would please encourage you to go on our website and read these. Become familiar with them. Sin is the primary cause for man's separation from God. According to the scripture, sin is disobedience, rebellion, and lawlessness against God. The Lord Jesus Christ described his gospel message thus. To open their eyes... So that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Those who receive Christ's gospel offer his free gift of salvation are forgiven of their personal sins against God, which includes salvation from the penalty of sin justification salvation from the power of sin sanctification and with a hope to salvation from the presence of sin and glorification beloved when we are saved we get all of this we get the whole Christ and this is what Paul is ceaselessly preaching verse 5 they want to bring us back into bondage Paul says. We did not yield in subjection to those false brethren for even an hour. And literally in the Greek, this is really would be for a moment. Why? So the truth of the gospel would remain with you. I can't think of a more pastoral statement than that final statement. My prayer as an elder here at Baraka my desire is that in all we say the result is that the truth of the gospel remains with you that's why as we have screened and interviewed pastor teacher candidates here Baraka we specifically have been looking for men who share this vision I'm 64 I don't know how much longer I have here on the earth I don't know that. No one does. Arthritis eats slowly away at my body. I could get hit by a car tomorrow. At any time the Lord calls me home, I'm ready to go. But the one thing that I would love to be certain about is that when I'm not here, or Howard's not here, or Ed's not here, or any of the elders are not here, that the truth of the gospel will remain with you. Because this is the only message of salvation. So Paul was the apostle of the gospel. There was no New Testament when Paul was writing. The gospel is being communicated by him and those traveling with him as well as the other apostles. Peter was a preacher of the true gospel. His preaching dominates the first half of the book of Acts. The record of the early preaching of the the church. Paul comes in to preach in the 12th chapter and fills the rest of the book of Acts all the way to chapter 28. So the gospel really resides in these men until it is eventually written down in the New Testament by those who were their disciples and associates. Verse 6, But from those who were of considerable repute, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no favoritism. Well, those who were of repute contributed nothing to me. Now, the appearance of this somewhat offhand remark confirms what Peter has been saying since the beginning of this epistle that he brought this ministry, the the bringing of this ministry was not wrought of discipleship from Peter or James but was wrought solely by the Holy Spirit. When he says in verse 7 and 8, But to the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter has been to the circumcised, for he who was at work for Peter and his apostleship to the circumcised was at work for me also to the Gentiles. So Paul, by way of counterbalancing, by carefully considering these men of high standing, which he does not dispute, throws onto the scale his own independence of them. And the weight of the counterbalancing lies precisely in Paul's calling to the uncircumcised. The gospel of the uncircumcision, the duty of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised Gentile audience, was really Paul's unique office when he was converted and called to ministry. Well, we see this in Acts 9, don't we? Uh, Acts 9, uh, 13. Uh, Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many people about this man and how much harm he did to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. Here it comes. But the Lord said to him, Go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and sons of Israel. And so they perceived that he had been specially entrusted with this office from the remarkable success he had attended in his labors. This was well known by the other apostles, by those at the Jerusalem council. And it was clearly evident that Paul was was to preach not only to the Gentiles and Peter not only to the Jews for what for Paul often preached to the synagogues of the Jews and Peter was the first to preach to a Gentile in Acts 10 but it fell for the main business of Paul to preach to the Gentiles now the phrase was at work for Peter Peter was to preach principally to the circumcised Jews, to the Jews. And Paul selects out Peter particularly because he was the oldest of the apostles in order to show that he himself was to be regarded on a level with the most aged and venerable of the apostolic office. Again, not because of, of Paul's pride, but as just as a point of fact. He is one of them. And in the Jerusalem council clearly saw in the marvelous success of Paul and Barnabas a visible token of their divine commission and the grace that God had bestowed upon them. These were doubtless, these men were doubtless the most powerful authors of the final resolution that was adopted by the council regarding the relationship of this new budding church. The circumcised and the uncircumcised, the Jew and the Gentile. And we see, really in 8, that as the Spirit of God worked very effectively in Paul, as in Peter, it filled him with extraordinary gifts for the discharge of this work among the Gentiles. It had inspired him with zeal, constancy, and an intrepidity of mind. And it had wrought many miracles by him to confirm his mission. And we see these throughout scripture. Uh, the striking blind of Lymus the sorcerer, healing the cripple at Lystra, raising Eutychus from the dead, and many other signs and wonders wrought by him among the Gentiles. And so to sum up in verse 9, James, the brother of our Lord and the head of the church in Cephas, who is Peter, and John and the apostles gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. In other words, the act of solidarity. You're preaching the true gospel. Go to the Gentiles. And so Paul is saying here, yes, I am an apostle because God chose me. And Christ called me I'm a true apostle because I was trained personally by Christ for three years we've been looking at this throughout our study of Galatians I am an apostle because my message was validated by the other leading apostles James the leader of the church and Peter and John verse 10 they only asked us to remember the poor the very thing I was eager to do The poverty of Christians in Israel at this time was extreme. And it was, I think, the principal motive for this declaration being added as demonstrating the fact that they were were bearing the persecution of being believers uh, and they were poor people to begin with. These were not rich people. And perhaps also, there was a tremendous expectation of an imminent second coming. The hope of which was, be, was being near, and they, they all cherished this greatly. And we see this, of course, discussed in Thessalonians. And so here we see Paul's pastoral care to these people. Now when we come to verses 11 through 14 we come to a text that really no pastor would normally race to preach on. When asked to pulpit supply on a text of his choice, no pastor is going to say, yippee, I get to finally preach on Galatians 2, 11 through 14. Why? It's dirty, it's messy, but it is divinely appointed and necessary. But when Cephas, which was the aromatic word for Peter, Peter is the Greek word, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. So this is a rather shocking message. The Apostle Paul confronting the Apostle Peter to his face, opposing him because he was to be condemned for this the word katagazinos uh, menos is it's a long word it's the only occurrence used in scripture of the word condemned here and it means to be found guilty or at fault the only other simile really to this is 1 John 3:19 which says we will know this that we are of the truth And will set our heart at ease before him that if our heart condemns us that God is greater than our heart this is not a condemnation in terms of your eternal security with Christ of course that would that would be utterly impossible since Paul is a believer but what is behind this confrontation what is behind this confrontation Is what is behind the entire book of Galatians Paul's desire to defend and declare the true gospel in the face of certain men who have come to the churches of Galatia and propagate propagated false gospel and that it makes this a polemical book now the the word polemical means expressing a strongly critical attack or opinion about someone or something So it's a fight we're into. You're a soldier in a fight. You're a soldier in a battle here. It's a defense of the true gospel against those who were purveyors of the false gospel, whoever they may be. Now to understand sort of the history behind this personal confrontation, you really have to step back in time. In Genesis... God offers paradise. Genesis three, man's man falls. A sacrifice was required to restore man's relationship with God. Over time, Abel offers a proper sacrifice. Cain doesn't. We come to understand a sacrifice with the right heart was vital. A right heart says, "I know I'm a sinner. I know I can't earn salvation." I trust you God to be merciful to me to be gracious to me and to provide a substitute in my place to take away my punishment even though it, as in the Old Testament they didn't understand who that ultimate sacrifice was said ultimate substitute was to be well Paul picks up this reality in Romans 2 when he says not all Israel is Israel Not every Jew is a true Jew. There are Jews who are Jews outwardly, and there are fewer who are Jews inwardly. Go with me, if you would, over to Romans 2, verse 17. Romans 2, verse 17. If you call yourself a Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and distinguish the things that matter, being instructed from the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to people, who are blind, a light to those in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, possessing in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of truth. You, therefore, who teach someone else, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one is to not steal, do you steal? You who say that no one is to commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who loathe idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, through your breaking of the law, do you dishonor God? You see, people, the world has gone the way of Cain. Most of Israel had gone the way of Cain. And most of Israel, having gone the way of Cain, ended up killing the prophets who were going the way of Abel. And even in Judaism, the religion of Cain was killing those who were in the religion of Abel. And it's been the same in Christianity. True Christians through the history of Christianity have been massacred by pagans professing Christianity. And so you come down to the time of Jesus and you meet righteous Jews, people like Zacharias, Elizabeth, Joseph, Mary, Simeon, Anna, very few. The nation at the time of our Lord was hypocritical, massively hypocritical. Judaism was basically defined by the Pharisees who would say, I thank you that I am not like other men. I'm not a sinner like that publican over there. I tithe, I fast, etc., etc. I'm worthy to be received received by you, O Lord. The Bible is clear that Jews trusted in themselves. They've done it really throughout their history. Yet many had developed, unfortunately, an apostate form of Judaism, which was designed and defined by rabbinic tradition that replaced the Word of God. And we see this here in Galatians 2. Out of that vast, vast mass of legalistic, proud Jews, rises a group called the Judaizers. Judaizers because they what? Wanted to Judaize Gentiles. And and that is essentially what all forms, false forms of Christianity today would also say. They deny the sufficiency of the atoning, substitutionary death of Jesus, and demand that Gentile converts be circumcised and adhere to Mosaic rules and traditions. They're no adamant, they're so adamant about this that they trailed the apostle Paul and his ministry and went into the churches that he founded and began to propagate this and tell the Gentiles to what they had to conform. So let me sum up by saying that Paul was would say based here and and in Romans 4 and other places that what's before us and what's before us at no time, at no time in history has any person been saved with God even forgiven escaped judgment because of anything that person has done at no time no one has ever been saved by works never that's why faith is so much the subject that dominates all of Paul's letters so he's writing this because the Judaizers have taken up this false gospel this damning gospel, and they've confused people. It's not that believers have lost their salvation, you can't lose it. It's that they become confused about what the gospel really is. And because they're confused about the gospel, they're subject then to proclaim a false gospel. Paul is not trying to save them as if they could be lost again, he is trying to save their usefulness by making sure they understand the true gospel. And so when we come to verse 11 of chapter 2, when Cephas, or Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Peter had come to Antioch of Syria where the first church was and where Paul and Barnabas were pastors, along with a group of other men mentioned in the 12th chapter of Acts. Peter had come there. He'd stayed a long time. Probably the center of attention. Tell us about Jesus. Tell us about him. Perhaps, tell us what it was like when you walked on water. Tell us all the things that we've heard about you. Remember, the Gospels haven't been written yet. And an eyewitness with with Christ would have meant everything to those Gentile believers up in Antioch in a flourishing gospel church. Peter would have been some kind of hero to them. Why would Paul oppose him to his face? And it's a very strong language. It's a clash. We'll call it a clash. The term is actually antithema. uh, and to stay my, it means to stop someone in the direction they're going. Peter is doing something that has to be stopped. It could be translated, I forbid him. I set myself against him. I play defense, stopping him in his tracks. And I did it to his face, eyeball to eyeball, because he stood condemned. Condemned. I mean, that's shocking. How, how, how would you do some, that to someone like Peter? Well, where does Paul get this boldness? Is it some kind of personal jealousy? What's going on here? No, Peter had done something that Paul saw as what? An attack on the gospel. The gospel of grace alone, faith alone, and so he condemned him. An apostolic clash of massive proportions. The first half of the book of Acts is all about the preaching of Peter. The second half is all about the preaching of Paul. Why the clash? Well, the clash is in verse 12. For prior to, coming to the, to coming to, for prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of circumcision. Okay, what's going on here? You see a pattern sliding into sin sliding away what we know is right sliding into convenience sliding into a self-protective situation prior to the coming of certain men from james okay james is the head of the jerusalem church the brother of our lord he's a leader there we see that in in the 15th chapter of acts so here comes some men i don't think james sent these men I think they said they were from James. And they had some connection to the Jerusalem church. At this time, that's the mother church. So somehow they're associated with it. And prior to the arrival of these men who came from the Jerusalem church, they said they had a connection with James. So we have Peter here who had been eating with the Gentiles. And, and if you remember, the specific goal of the, of the Jerusalem Council that was happening about this time was it was to decide what aspects of any of the Old Testament law Christians must observe. The Jerusalem Council, for the sake of melding the Jewish and Gentile cultures within the Antioch Church, said that the Gentiles should give up their former pagan practices associated with idolatry and sexual immorality. There was no mention of the Sabbath. Further, they made it clear that these rules were not requirements for salvation by reaffirming that salvation is by grace for both Jews and Gentiles. The council demonstrated the willingness of apostolic leaders to make compromises on certain secondary issues in order to maintain peace and unity in the church. So, traditionally, the Jew may not eat with a Gentile without incurring Levitical defilement. But Peter who previously by special revelation, we see this in Acts 10, had been instructed as to the invalidation of this separation as a Christian, had in the apostolic conference defended Christian freedom and taken part in passing the decree that, as regards food, the Gentile brethren should only have to abstain from meat offered to idols, things strangled and blood. It was received and accepted with joy by the church at Antioch. So it should have been all the easier for Peter and Antioch to follow his divinely attained conviction and to take part without hesitation in the meals with Gentile Christians there, free from any scruple that he should defile himself by Gentile food. But Satan knows all of our weak points, doesn't he? To this free and correct standpoint, the stricter Jewish Christians who were still entangled in the observance of the Levitical precepts as to purity had not been able to escape. When, therefore, these people arrived from Jerusalem, ostensibly from James, which is dubious, Peter unhappily no longer continued his previous liberal-minded conduct, conduct, but drew back and separated himself from eating at meals with Gentile Christians, so denying his better conviction. Now, why is this a big deal? Because historically, there was an ironclad rule, Jews didn't eat with Gentiles. Forget Christianity, forget the gospel, forget the church, in the minds of these people, Jews didn't do that. A Gentile was unclean. A Gentile home was unclean. A Gentile utensil was unclean. They couldn't go near Gentiles. They couldn't eat off the dish a Gentile offered them. These were rabbinic standards that were iron fisted laws. It was believed that all Gentile food was contaminated by being unclean, to say nothing of that which was not kosher, not according to the standards of Mosaic dietary laws. So what you had was Jews holding to their own dietary laws and a kind of developing racism against Gentiles. We saw the racism even in the day of Jonah, didn't we? When he didn't really want to see the Gentiles repent. Jews resented, hated Gentiles, and they kept separate. So Peter was raised in that environment, He comes to Antioch, he's in a Gentile church. What does he do? He does what a Jew would never do. He would would eat with the Gentiles, which showed the lessons he learned in Acts 10. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. There's nothing unclean anymore. The dietary laws are over in Christ. The middle wall is broken down. Jew and Gentile are one, and Christ is neither Jew nor Greek. That's it, he knows that. And he also knows that they are brothers and sisters in Christ. And when he eats with them, it's not just a meal, it's a love feast. It's a Lord's table. He's living life with Gentiles. He's with them all the time. They're being served the same food. He's finding out what it is to eat all the stuff that Jews could never eat. He's been liberated, eating with Gentiles, his brothers and sisters in Christ, until men show up. Until men show up. And he begins to withdraw and hold himself aloof. He pulls back. They would have criticized him mercilessly. As we have seen. For eating with Gentiles. And they would have probably said this. Not only are you not to eat with Gentiles. They're not believers because they haven't been circumcised. And they don't adhere to Mosaic rules. So you're not only with Gentiles who are unclean you're eating with non-believers they completely intimidated Peter so he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof he was fearing the party of the circumcision the Judaizers he was afraid of them Peter was a good man a great man but for the sake of pride and self-protection Self preservation, popularity, he compromised. Does this sound familiar in the church today? Peter just can't get out of his own shadow. It's an illustration of how sanctification works. It's not a straight line upward, it's a few steps forward, a couple of steps back. A few steps forward, maybe a few steps sideways. And it's where we all live, isn't it? He wants to be liked. He wanted to be accepted. He also knows he's supposed to take the gospel to the Jews, his particular calling. And now if he offends them all, what's going to happen? What he did was so influential. Verse 13 says, that the rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy. With the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. Barnabas of all people. Um, Peter had become a hypocrite. He acted like he agreed with the Judaizers. Absolutely devastating. And so did the rest of the Jews that were there. And so did Barnabas. And now what you have is a fracture in the church. A fracture in the local church and, and really even more than that this is not just about disunity it's assault on the uh, it's assault on the gospel of faith the very thing I let off with because now Peter's acting as if the Judaizers are right for that Paul says I opposed him to his face because he was to be condemned see if you deviate from the gospel in what you say about the gospel or you deviate from the gospel in how you act, you're in violation of the purity of the gospel. It's hard, I get that. It's hard to be bold for the gospel when you're with people who compromise the gospel, but talk about Christ. It's hard to talk to someone in a form of Christianity that is apostate, heretical, outside the bounds of the true gospel. It's hard to talk to a Catholic, or someone in a cult, or some fringe group, or any kind of Christian organization that has review of the gospel that's in error. If I can just share something with you, else with you, it really goes deeper than this, and the fact that, as we, that we as Christians are weak and easily deceived. We are called... Uh, it's why we have a plurality of elders at this church, We are called because biblically we are above reproach, aren't we? Yet we still come into this office as sinners, and at times we deceive ourselves that perhaps we're God's gift, and we need periodically to be brought up short, as Peter was. Go with me, if you would, over to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, verse 6. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and taught. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. Now the scribes and the Pharisees were watching him closely to see if he healed on the Sabbath. So that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew what they were thinking. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Get up and come forward. And he got up and came forward. And Jesus said to them, I ask you whether it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to harm, to save a life or to destroy it. And after looking around at them, he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they themselves were filled with senseless rage and began discussing together what they might do to Jesus it was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray and he spent the whole night in prayer with God and when day came he called his disciples to him and chose twelve of them who he also named as apostles now go with me over to Luke 9 Luke 9 verse 1 He called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and the power to heal diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, neither a staff nor a bag, nor bread nor money, and do not have, even have two tunics. And wherever house you enter, stay there, stay there until you leave that city. And as for all who do not receive you, when you leave that city, shake the dust of your feet off as testimony against them. And as they were leaving, they began going through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now go with me along this line of thought over to Mark chapter 6, verse 7. Parallel account. Mark 6, chapter 7. And he called the twelve and began to send them out. How? Two by two. And gave them authority over unclean spirits and charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff. Continuing on. Why did he send them out in pairs? Why? Because he knew they would be under tremendous spiritual attack. They were going to be confronting clever, unclean spirits head-on. One of the pair might fail or fall in proclaiming what might have been needed to be said in a village. The partner can then bolster him. Now these men were particularly spiritually commissioned for this task. Possibly an unprecedented Provision of earthly power never before seen in man, given by our Lord. But it's why we are told specifically in Luke 6, Jesus spent an entire night in prayer before commissioning them, these master's men. The prayer had followed what? A withering spiritual attack about what? Healing on the Sabbath. Confronting Judaic customs. The all-powerful Judaic customs that had come to dominate Jewish society as we've seen earlier, the exact sort of temptation that had overtaken and compromised Peter here in Galatians 2. He wanted them to be prepared, He wanted them to be armed. He wanted them to be soldiers prepared for battle. He sends them out, how? In twos, in pairs. Brothers or sisters, Galatians 2:11:14 wasn't an accident or an anomaly in Scripture. Or didn't take God by surprise. It was placed there deliberately among a discussion on the true gospel and the abuse of Christian liberty because God knew from the dawn of time the apostle, the restored apostle Peter, would falter here. He would fail. He would stumble. And fellow apostle Paul was available, equipped adequately equipped to come alongside here in Antioch and abrade him to his face and so rescue him from further sin. Sin, by the way, which had spread to Barnabas and the others. By the way, this wasn't the only internal conflict that affected the apostles. Just prior to this, as Paul was heading out on his second missionary journey, we see in Acts 15... Uh, verse 36 to 41, that just before Paul leaves on his second missionary journey, while he and Barnabas put their affairs in order and planned out the relevant details of the trip, a disagreement arose between them regarding whether or not John Mark should accompany them. And, And here's what Luke writes in Acts 15, 36. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, so they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So when did Mark abandon them? Well, for that answer, we go back to Acts 13. 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Pamphys, And came to Perga and Pamphylia and John Mark left them and returned to Jerusalem so Mark joined joining a journey led by Paul at this point would have been unwise apparently rightly or wrongly Paul couldn't trust him and therefore Mark could not have been could have been effective under his leadership so you see here why Why being a lone ranger Christian just doesn't work why a church without a plurality of elders just doesn't work we need each other we need prayer the elders here need prayer constant daily prayer we're under the same uh, pressures uh, more so even than than our fellow congregants so please pray for us none of us is is, um, immune from sin in this area the gospel and our motives and drive to serve in the work of the gospel is always under spiritual attack. And it's why we as elders gather as a plurality to pray for you. And we're necessary over you. And where we discuss often an animated manner, the affairs of the church. So that any error or lack of proper vigilance that creeps in can hopefully be quickly dealt with. But we're not perfect, we're weak, we're susceptible to sin. I just want to close with this. Please go with me over to Mark 10, Mark 10, verse 35. And James and John the sons of Zebedee came up to him and said to him teacher we want you to do for us whatever you ask of us and he said to them what do you want me to do for you and they said to him grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory Jesus said to them you do not know what you are asking Are you able to drink the cup that I drank, or to be baptized with the baptism which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drank, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right, or my left, is not mine to grant, but it is for those to whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. And so we see the reconciliation that happened later with Peter. He learned this in 1 Peter, where he commended the writings of Paul, and Paul as being a true apostle. He had learned from this experience. It had emboldened him. It had, grew, it had grown in him. Made him a stronger man of faith. And it shows one can learn and grow from an upbraiding. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for upbraidings that come in our life. We thank you for strong believers that have come along in my life and people that I have known to correct them, to keep them strong in you as we know that. The devil prowls looking for easy prey, looking for those he can devour. And Lord, we, we thank you for those that are, are strong in the faith in this church, that have kept it going for 20, 30, 40, 50 years, faithfully serving you. And as we transition to um, just a, a new future, uh, as we, uh, uh, we will, uh, as we prepare to interview men and, and eventually bring someone on in this in this post as pastor teacher Lord we pray that you would show this person the same grace the same love the same constancy that you have shown to myself my family and to the other leaders of this church Lord we thank you for um, uh, your spirit moving among us and we just pray that we would uh, pray for just increased steadfastness steadfastness as we were as we are confronted by Uh, sin, uh, Satan attempts to uh, deceive us in many ways. And we just, um, we pray that we would be um, aware of this, prepared to confront it and deal with it. And we just thank you for your provision in this through your Holy Spirit as we and your word that guides us. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.